Good morning. It is so wonderful to see you all here. We're pretty full today. Very thankful for that. So we have made the decision as a church throughout this year, um, last year, with the COVID pandemic happening, that we were going to err on the side of being open. And, and we make no apologies for that here. We believe that we're following the Lord um, in doing that. But I do want to, to just say and, and remind everyone that we want you to be as safe as possible when you come here to worship. Uh, we do not require masks here, but if you would feel more comfortable wearing a mask, you're certainly encouraged to do that. You're encouraged to spread out as much as possible. And, and looking at our auditorium right now, let me encourage uh, those of you who call Fellowship Baptist your home, you're part of our family here. By that, I mean you're a member and specifically those of us who are in leadership here at the church, I always notice that these first three front rows <laughs> seem to have plenty of room for physical distancing. Uh, and so let me just encourage you, if you're, if you're part of our family here, you've attended here, you've been a member for quite some time, let me encourage you to take some leadership in coming weeks and, and utilize the front rows. Because when you, and we all know this, when we're brand new, to a ministry, you come into a new setting, the last thing you want to have to do is come up to the very front. And that will allow some seating uh, towards the back. And if, if you are here and you're concerned about that and physical distancing, we also do have some limited seating up in the balcony. And you're certainly welcome to sit up there too if you would feel better about doing that. So I just wanted to be sure to mention that. Hey church, let's be in prayer for our brother, Mike Berg. This week, I think everyone knows, or, or probably if you're, if you're a part of our ministry here, you know that his dear wife, Doreen, who loved Jesus passionately with all of her heart, is now experiencing the very fulfillment of her faith, and she is in his presence right now. But Doreen passed away last Monday, um, and so let's be in prayer for Mike. As much as he knows that, Mike and I went to lunch on Friday, and uh, just had a great time together, and as much as Mike, uh, his faith is strong, and he's pressing into Christ, and he knows where his bride of 40-plus uh, years is, um, yeah, I'm sorry, 53 years, thank you, thank you, Sue, as much as he knows where Doreen is right now and that she's in the presence of Jesus, it's still hard to have walked through that much life with someone and uh, now for them to be gone. So be in prayer for Mike. Um, if you would like to support him in a, a very real way, today is the, uh, the funeral, the, well, the memorial service, but also the visitation is at Bower Rose Funeral Home in Marine City. And that visitation is happening from 3 to 7 today, and then there will be a memorial service at 7 o'clock. And so if you'd like to come out to that and support Mike, you're certainly welcome to do that. Well, here we are, church. We've reached the final chapter of Revelation. As you see on the screen, we're in Revelation chapter 22. Today, we're only going to try to tackle five verses. But, well, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know how long I can draw out five verses. But uh, <laughs> let's dig into it together. We've got to get moving here. So we're looking at the first five verses of this chapter, and then, Lord willing, next Sunday uh, we will finish the book together. But let's read this together. Let's read our passage together today as we start. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of our Lord to us as church, for whom Christ died and is alive forevermore. Amen? So looking back to the first verse here, we see that the angel who had been John's guide Throughout chapter 21, if you were to skim back through that last chapter, here he shows John a river in the new city. He's giving him a tour, so to speak, of the new Jerusalem that's fallen. And last week we, we discussed that at length and, and the size of the city and what the city was made out of. And here he's kind of guiding him through the city, and we see this river. And this river is unlike any other in that it's composed of living water. What must that look like? What does living water look like flowing through a river? Can we even imagine that? Well, living water flows throughout the Bible, if you'll excuse the pun. It symbolizes our salvation. It symbolizes abundant and eternal life. Let me just show you where we see this in Scripture, a few places here really quickly. Jeremiah 2.13, Jehovah identifies himself. God says about himself as the fountain of living waters to Israel. This is how he identifies himself in Jeremiah. And, And we shouldn't forget that beautiful encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. We talked about a different piece of this encounter last week when we talked about the temple and where worship should happen. But let's read a a different section of that this morning where Jesus talks about living water. And he says, if you knew, he says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And later in John's gospel... Jesus is going to say to a crowd of people in chapter 7, he's going to say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Don't miss this, church. Don't miss this. Belief in the gospel. Turning to Jesus. Trusting in Jesus for our salvation. 
results in living water flowing in us and from us, according to the words of Christ. Abundant life, eternal life, kingdom life begins at the very moment of our conversion. I would would just guess that the vast majority of you in this room, the reason you've prioritized being here on a Sunday morning, even though culturally there's pressure not to be here on a Sunday morning, I'm, I'm guessing that part of the reason is that because you have done that, you've trusted in Christ for your salvation. These, these verses that Jesus and what Jesus says here, this is true of you. Out of your heart will flow living water. Abundant life began at that moment of your conversion. For some of you, it might have been in the last year. For others of you, it might have been 50 years ago. You first trusted in Christ to save you. And in that moment, everything changed. But listen, church. To what degree we experience abundant life largely depends on us. Now, let's not get off into theological error here. What I'm not saying is that your salvation in any way depends on you. But to what degree in this life you experience abundant life largely depends on you. That's not my idea. I hope I never get up here and give you my ideas. That's the last thing I want to do. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek is an imperative verb. It's telling us to do something. So therefore, largely, the degree in which I experience the kingdom of God right here, right now in my life, largely depends on the degree to which I seek God's kingdom. The kingdom of God has not yet come in fullness. It will one day. It will come fully one day. But if you know Jesus, it has come in your life in part. The degree in which the kingdom is realized, church, in our lives, in the here and now, is determined by the degree to which we turn our backs on the kingdom of this world. We will know more of the kingdom of God as we turn our backs more on the kingdom of this world and we abide with Jesus Christ. We could know more of it. We could know more of the kingdom of God in our lives than we know right now. If we would only choose to stop being entangled with the affairs of this world and learn to live as citizens of that kingdom. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom? It is in the word of the living God, the Bible, this book, 66 books, gathered together, that we find out what that means. This is our source of truth, amen? Nothing else. No news media outlet, no talking head nobody's opinion. Anyone else like me, sometimes you just have to take a fast from all that. You just have to shut off the radio 
Now listen, I believe we need to be students of the times. We need to be like the sons of Issachar, understanding the times in which we live and knowing what we should do. I'm not arguing for sticking your head in the sand as a Christian and not being aware of the culture or the politics or anything else that's around you. It's not what I'm saying. But this is where we find truth. In this book, the wars that we wage, I'm going to give you one example of what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom. The wars that we wage are in the spiritual realm, not in the natural realm. What does that mean? Well, for one, it means that no man or woman is my enemy. And I hear Christians talk like this. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is very clearly saying here who our enemy is, and it's not people. Who is our enemy, church? We have just spent over one year studying through the books of Job and Revelation. Believe me, for me, they were heavy lifts. And we've just spent a year studying through these two books together. I hope we're clear on who our enemy is because it comes through very clearly in both of those books. Our enemy is not a person. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Let's go to war. But let's go to war against the right enemy. Let's go to war against Satan. Let's go to war against the spirit of the Antichrist and the false prophet for the glory of Christ and because we love all people. But maybe we don't. And maybe that's where we need to start is to learn to love all people. Every human being is created in God's image and so dearly loved by God. Every human being was loved so much that Jesus Christ gave up his very life on the cross for them. And so if I am to be like Christ, if I am to be recreated in his image, then I will, I will learn to truly love all people, even people who disagree with me. Oh, this is where it gets hard. Even people who don't believe like I believe. Even people where it seems like their agenda is contrary to the agenda of the kingdom of God. I will learn to love them. Jesus said, love your enemies. Church, I don't know how else to say this. This book, it was written into a land of real persecution. I'm not talking about what we experience. We don't, even, we don't even understand persecution. If you think the church is being persecuted in the United States right now, you have a lot to learn about persecution. You do. We don't know what persecution is. We have brothers and sisters around the globe who understand it. And this book was written, Jesus said, 
spoke, taught, Paul wrote into a church environment where they had an occupier who was killing them, who was telling them that they could not practice their faith. We need to learn to love all people because it's what the Bible tells us to do. We need to learn to love all people, friends, very simply because that's what Jesus says we ought to do. Amen? Amen. I need to learn to not see people as my enemies. I just want you to ponder that for a minute. Do you see people who believe differently than you as your enemy? Can I challenge you to think differently about this? Our fight is not with people. Our fight is for people. It's amazing what one little word, the difference it makes. We as the body of Christ are not fighting with people. We are fighting for people. We are fighting for people that God loves dearly, and we want them to understand and embrace the gospel. Amen? That's our desire. We're not fighting with them. When we make them the enemy, we are so off track. When we make people our enemy, we are not living as citizens of a kingdom. People are not our enemies. We're fighting for them. We fight against evil in the spiritual realm for the hearts and the souls of people. This is the work of the kingdom of God. And so my prayer for us at Fellowship is that we would learn to live as citizens of the kingdom. Back to the text, in eternity, living water flows through the city. Is it going to have a pragmatic purpose? Why is there a river of life flowing through the city? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Is it going to have a pragmatic purpose to it? Will we drink from it? I don't know. Will it be just a beautiful reminder of our salvation? But there it is in the text, and I trust that that is what we will see in this new city in eternity. And then next, John sees something that he would have read about in the book of Genesis. And this is such a beautiful part of this story. But he sees this in verse 2. He's also on either side of the river. And I want you to picture this because this is mind-blowing to me. On either side of this river of life, the tree of life, one tree, he says, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Uh, artists have tried to picture this, and they, they'll picture a tree growing up over top of the river with its root system coming down on both sides of the river. Almost forming like a, a I don't know, what would that be? A trellis or, you know, that you would maybe, I don't know, float down between it's going to be amazing. But John would have known this verse. He would have known Genesis 2.9 since his boyhood. He would have memorized this as a young man. And he would have instantly thought back to Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground, Jehovah God, the Lord God, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. If you ever want just the coolest Bible study to do, Write this down, those of you who love doing home Bible studies. 
I want you to read Genesis chapters 1 through 2, and then immediately go to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. It's easy to remember the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, and look at all the similarities. Look at all the connecting points. It's the coolest Bible study. You'll see so many things that are set back right. In eternity, God is going to incorporate the garden into this new city that will be our home. Eden is going to be restored. How many of you have been to Manhattan Island in New York City? Let me see your hands. Bunch of you, okay. Central Park? Picture that, but one million trillion times cooler. The Garden of Eden set in the middle, in the heart of this city, restored. Eden is restored. Even better, Eden is made anew. And what does the verse tell us? The nations are healed. Why do the nations need healing? Well, let's remember our theology. Let me walk you through the Bible here. Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve were not only to enjoy the garden of Eden, but also to care for it as an act of worship. They were supposed to do something with it. Genesis 2.15 tells us the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. However, due to their sin, Adam and Eve and their descendants were banished from the garden. And we find that play out for us in the third chapter of Genesis, specifically verse 17 says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. But now in this new city, in Revelation 22, through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, church, because of his death and resurrection, men and women are now back in the garden. What we have been expelled from since Genesis chapter 3, God now makes anew for us in this city for our enjoyment and for our abundant life. The curse has been removed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And look at what the verse says, the leaves will heal the nations. Not only does this tree provide fruit to be eaten, but its leaves are therapeutic and they bring about healing. We see this idea back in Ezekiel, by the way. Ezekiel 47, 12 says, and on the banks, on, the, on both sides of the river, just notice how similar this is to what we just read in Revelation. There will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. You see, this is prophetic. Jehovah speaking through Ezekiel about the kingdom to come. Now here, in this passage, it's very interesting because the healing that happens when Ezekiel talks about it is for Israel. But who is the healing for in Revelation? All nations. We are all grafted in, people from every tribe and tongue and nation who trust in Christ alone for their salvation are forgiven, healed, and they're absolutely secure. Everything that is broken by sin is made anew. Perfect shalom. Absolutely perfect shalom. Perfect 
peace will be created. It is all we will ever know for the rest of eternity. Amen? Unbelievable. Let's go to verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The curse that humanity has brought upon itself will be removed. And then in verse 4, we see the absolute best part of what eternity is going to be like. There's going to be so much beauty, so much riches in our inheritance for following Christ. But by far, this will be the best part of eternity, church. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. What unspeakable joy. What unspeakable joy. We will finally at last be in the presence of the triune God. The unity between God and man that had been destroyed by sin. Again, let me walk you through the Bible. I can do that pretty quickly, apparently. We made it through once already. The fall had separated us from God. Do you remember? Do you remember the impact of that on this issue? Exodus chapter 33, God said to Moses, you can't see my face. God says, to, how many of you think you're more righteous than Moses? That you're living a more obedient life than Moses was? And God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Isaiah realized it, chapter 6, he says, woe to me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Moses and Isaiah could not look on God's face and live. But then the incarnation happened. Jesus was born as a baby. God took on a human body. And John wrote in the very beginning of his gospel concerning Jesus some wonderful truths. Chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying we've seen God himself in Jesus Christ. We've seen the very glory of God in the incarnation. And then just a few verses later, he writes, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, Jesus. When you're looking at Jesus, you are seeing God himself. Jesus, the Word, God in the flesh, a baby born in a stable, a child playing. Little kids would play with Jesus. We've got children in our room because it's communion Sunday. You guys are being so good. Pastor Terry can go on and on and on. How does he talk so long about five verses, right? That's what I'd be thinking if I was your age. You guys are being so amazing. Hey, I've said this before, but if I ever get boring, go to the David and Goliath story and just read it. I read David and Goliath like a hundred times when I was your age. So, well, my pastor just kept talking. So, I have no idea what I was about to say. Oh, little kids. Little kids. Guys, played with Jesus. They dug in the sand and they made stuff. And there's all kinds of stories that we don't know are true or not, or you know, so I won't get into those. But little kids played with, they looked at God, God Himself, taken on flesh. It's a little child. 
A baby born in a stable, a child playing, a man building a house. Jesus became a man at 13 years old in their culture. He probably didn't start his public ministry till he was like maybe 28. 15 years. He ran. I don't know when Joseph passed away. We assume Joseph died before Jesus' public ministry because he never appears throughout the gospel narratives after the time he was a boy in the temple. Jesus was a boy in the temple. But at some point, Jesus took over dad's business, and he worked. I'm sure he worked hard. And he built things. He built homes. God in the flesh, building. So many through those years would look on his face and believe in him. So many through those years of his life on this earth would look on his face and believe in him. They would enter into abundant and eternal life. And not only when Jesus was on the earth, but ever since that, as this book is preached and taught all over the world, throughout history, the beautiful gospel message is shared. Crazy stories. Crazy mission stories. If you, if you don't read missions biographies and mission histories, can I just challenge you to pick one up and start reading? You will be hooked. Crazy stories of how the gospel has gone forth into all of the world. Because now men and women everywhere can trust in Jesus and become citizens of heaven. Paul wrote to the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that we are seated with Christ. That even now, in some mysterious way, don't ask me to explain it because I don't get it, but I believe it, that we are seated in heaven with Jesus Christ right now. That we see him in a spiritual sense. How many of you have tasted that? You've tasted that in prayer. You've tasted that in his word. You know what it's like to be in the presence of God. And in some real way, that is a reality. But one day, one glorious day, church, we will see him. One glorious day, we will see him. I cannot wait to see Jesus my Savior, my Lord, my Captain, my King. Amen? I can't wait. I cannot wait to be with him. The only times, I'm just going to be totally honest and transparent, we're done. I had a couple more pages of notes, but this is as good of a place to quit as any. The only time I don't feel that way is when I allow myself to get entangled into the affairs of the world. Anybody with me today? Are, are, am I all alone? Can I speak real or do I got to keep my mask on for you? We're in church. I should probably keep my mask on. So what we do. We come in here, we wear our masks, you know. Everything's good. Everything's perfect. The only time I, I don't feel that way is when I allow myself to get entangled. But when I throw all that off and I'm living as a citizen of the kingdom and I realize that I'm not fighting with people, 
Brothers and sisters, that was my mistake. If anybody, uh, let me just confess it right now. I know (laughs) we've got people from my last church in Saginaw that watch us every week. Brothers and sisters in Saginaw that I used to pastor, forgive me for fighting with you. Forgive me. When I don't live as a citizen of the kingdom, my fight is with people. I'm entangled by this world, but when I choose to throw all that off and I am living as a citizen, I realize that my fight is not with people. My fight is for people. I am fighting against Satan for them so that they would understand the gospel, so that they would believe, so that they would let the word of God saturate them and learn to abide in Jesus Christ and to see that everything in this life is only temporary and that everything that truly matters is in the kingdom waiting for us. That's a beautiful way to live, isn't it? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Worship team, come on up. That's my prayer for us. We are going to um, come around the Lord's table right now after our wonderful worship team leads us in a song. We will um, celebrate communion together. And we always do three things when we celebrate communion. We look back to the cross, and I certainly want you to do that. And we celebrate our present relationship with him, and I certainly want you to do that. But the third thing we do, brothers and sisters, is we look ahead to being with Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Captain, our King, the lover of our souls, the best friend we've ever had. We look forward to being with him in his kingdom in eternity. And can we just focus on that one today? Thanking him for the cross, enjoying the abundant life that he's given to us now and remembering that the degree to which we experience that today in this life largely depends on us. Jesus said to seek it. There must be a reason that he told us to chase after it. It must depend on me in some way how much I experience kingdom life right now. And so we want to focus on that. And and, and certainly, brothers and sisters, as Even you have this time during the worship song and you're worshiping and you're singing. Do what Paul says to do in Corinthians. Confess sin. If you've gotten off track, if you're too entangled right now in the things of this world and you need to repent and you need to turn back to Christ your King, certainly do that. If if you found yourself lately fighting with people and, and just you want to follow suit with my confession to anybody in Saginaw who I used to fight with and you want to right now say I'm done with that I'm done with fighting with people I'm going to fight for people I'm going to use the gospel I'm going to use the word of God I'm going to use the Holy Spirit in me I'm going to love others I'm going to pray for them I'm going to look for opportunities and I'm going to share the beautiful truth of the gospel message with Certainly make that commitment during this song. Give your life anew to Christ. 
Once we're saved, once we're truly saved, we're always saved. We're secure in the hand of Christ because your salvation, brothers and sisters, is not dependent on your grip on Jesus. It's dependent on his grip on you. And he will never let you go. But how many of you do know that we have to give our lives anew to him often? Because we are prone to wander. So maybe in this moment right now, it's what you need to do. You need to turn your heart back to Christ. You need to declare to him, Jesus, you are my king. You are everything to me. I want your will for my life for the rest of my life. Use this time. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. But use this time as we worship him.